God, we praise you because we do believe that you have given us the gift of, of knowing you through knowing your word. Specifically, as we've been reading through the gospel of Mark, the good news of Mark, it's the story of Jesus. And today we have the story of his uh, an interaction here at the synagogue where Jesus is teaching. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to the meaning. I pray that you would reveal the identity of Jesus. And I pray that you would help us know and understand, not just as a general truth, what does this mean, but to us individually. What does this truth mean to me as we learn about Jesus, his words and his works, and the ministry that he had? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were with us from the very beginning of our study, then you would know that one of the key things that we said we would take away of our study from Mark is that you would know for yourself who is Jesus. If we, uh, as you've been coming, as we've been studying, Mark's, one of his specific goals is that he would reveal the identity of who Jesus was, and he's giving us information. He's telling us the story. The story is unfolding. And in, in Mark chapter 8, which we'll get to, we have Peter's confession of who Christ is. And if you're not familiar with that, let me encourage you. Read Mark. Uh, read ahead. Uh, and, and see what work that God was doing in the life of Simon Peter. But... One of the reasons we always come to Scripture is not so that we know the story of uh, Jesus, but it's so that we personally know and understand who Jesus is and what does he mean into my life. And as a result, what do I do with these truths? We believe that the Bible uh, is God's word for us to transform us and to help us understand how is life lived best. We, we talk to the kids all the time. We read it. This is not new, uh, Sam's creation, but we read a Bible, a little Bible uh, storybook when, uh, when the kids were younger. They're still little. But it says God's word tells us how life works best. And it really is that simple. Uh, we go to God's word because we believe that, that the very author of life, the one who created all things, the God who knows all things, reveals to us how life works best. And so this morning, as we study, we are going to see two things that Mark is going to put in front of us to say, here is evidence of who Jesus is. Remember I told you that the title, if I were to pick a title, it would be The Astonishing, Amazing Jesus, because it really is what Mark is, is saying. So when we end our, our time in the Word together today, here's what I want you to know. I want you to be able to answer what was so astonishing about Jesus. I want you to know very specifically what was so amazing about Jesus. And they almost seem like two, two, the same thing. We use those words interchangeably. So I'll, I'll show you what Mark is saying. Why was Jesus aston uh, so astonishing? The people that, that heard him speak, the people that heard him and saw his ministry, why were they astonished? We're going to look at why were they amazed. And then we're going to finish this morning with verse 27. Because Mark is very specifically leading in the story. He says the people were astonished. He's going to show that they were amazed. And then, as if reflecting, Paul, or excuse me, uh, Mark tells us, here's the question that people are asking among themselves. What is this? What did we just see? What did we just hear? What did we just experience? Because it didn't fit any box that they had. 
And so we want to end with, with Mark's own question. What is this? And so we want to take a look at well, what does it mean? What does it mean for you to now know why Jesus astonished, why he amazed? And we want to take a look at what does it mean, okay? Now, let's begin. I want to take a look at this fir- the first statement, this astonished. And we're going to take a look at verses 21 and verse 22. Let me read them again. It says, And he went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So let me unpack a few things. Maybe some context will be helpful. First of all, this idea of going to the synagogue. The, the synagogue was, was the place where the Jews would gather. Uh, the, the synagogue begins to be, uh, become a part of the Jewish cultural life if, if you know Old Testament or you don't. There was a time where the Jews worshipped by going to the temple. But after the temple was destroyed and after they were kicked out of their land, the Jews began to uh, basically uh, build synagogues. It would be very similar to what we are doing today. They built a place where the Jews could come together and they could read God's word and pray. Now, at that synagogue, you would have somebody, typically a rabbi or a scribe, who would take the scrolls. So today, uh, we have our, our, our written copy of the Bible. Each of you probably have it. You also have it on your phone. In these times, it was very rare to have the Word of God. In fact, it was, it was truly almost a sacred thing to have the written Word. And so you would have a copy of uh, the, the, Hebrew, um, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, And they would be on a scroll. And the way that they would begin, if there was a teacher, they had the scribes uh, and they had the rabbis that attended the synagogue, but oftentimes they would have a visiting teacher. And they would invite that visiting teacher to take the scroll, to come and read the scroll, and then interpret it. Very similar to what we're doing today. We read God's word, and then we discuss together what is the meaning of this text. And so when we come to this scripture, Jesus, the, the, the scene is Jesus has come to a synagogue. He's recognized as a teacher, and he's asked to share. He, uh, and so Jesus would have uh, opened that, the, that scroll. He would have read a scripture, and then he would have shared the meaning of that text. Now, so that's a little bit of the background. Now, scribes, let me just tell you, because it says Jesus taught them not as one of the scribes. Who was a scribe? The scribes were the one in charge of literally copying down those sacred scriptures. They, they held an esteemed uh, place in the Jewish culture. They, they were in many ways because not only did they handle the, the, the copying and the care of those scrolls, but they were the ones who, because they were so highly regarded, they were basically like your civil lawyers. When there was a dispute... You went to, oftentimes, a scribe. And a scribe, because he knew God's law, he copied God's law, and he would interpret God's law. So the scribes were, were people who were uh, absolutely respected in the Jewish culture. And so this is not somebody, when we see this comparison, that Jesus taught not as one of the scribes, you need to understand, there's not a lot of higher positions in the Jewish culture. You had Pharisees, we had scribes, we had rabbis or teachers, but just to give you an idea... The setting is a synagogue, much like we're here, we're gathered. Uh, And they're recognizing that when Jesus teaches, he doesn't teach like a scribe. Now, I want to get to the the next word here, and this is to help us understand. Astonished. 
When we use the words, uh, I don't know what word we, we commonly use. Uh, in my generation, was awesome. We'd always say something is awesome. I don't know what the new word is in today's culture. Um, I don't know if I, I would say, I'm, I use amazed a lot. Um, sometimes you're like, man, it's crazy. But you mean crazy good. Uh, it, when your mind is, is trapped, you know, I might use something like that. Uh, where you recognize you've just encountered something that you've never encountered before. The, the word here for astounding, we could use uh, many different ways, but the, the, uh, the best word picture I can give you, as I was trying to research, was it said it was literally like being struck in the face, uh, but, and, and not unconscious, but not physically unconscious because of pain, like, but in your mind, you're, you, you are so struck by what you've heard, that you're knocked out of your senses. Have you ever used that word? I don't, I, we've used it. Uh, I, I've, I've used it as a threat uh, to people. I'm like, I'm going to knock you out of your senses. Uh, but to get you to understand the force of this word, what they're saying was when they heard the teaching of Jesus, they were literally knocked out of their senses. And, and what I think that means is they had no box to even process the way that Jesus taught them. Now, if you understand that astonished, so basically thinking, encountering something that was so unique that you couldn't process or understand what you had just seen. I don't know if, if that's happened to you in your life. I know that sometimes that's happened in fear, right? Have you ever, has something ever happened to you where immediately, like, you, you get that sick feeling in your stomach? Uh, and uh, you're, you have a hard time processing what, what just happened. Right? I've had that happen in fear. This seems to be the reality that they're in a setting where someone teaches and it so rocks their understanding of, I've never heard anyone ascribe a rabbi talk like this. So you got to understand, it's completely unique. This would, this would be a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. It, it wouldn't be, like, you wouldn't go home and say, it was kind of like when Rabbi Gamaliel talked to us. What they're saying was, no, we don't have the comparison at all to what we just heard. Now, let me explain a little bit about why. Because what it says is, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. I want to dig a little bit deeper in this, this word, because what does it mean? In fact, so if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the stories of Jesus, you actually encounter this a lot. As people will often comment, he's teaching as one with authority. I've actually read that a lot myself, and I never have researched to figure out what does it actually mean. Uh, in general, I think I know what it means, so I did some dig, uh, some digger deeping, deep, deeper. Yeah, I'll leave that. I won't even come back. Why would you trust anything I say after that? I dug deeper. And this idea of authority. This word specifically, once again, uh, when it's helpful, we'll take a look at the, the original languages. I'm not a scholar, but the, the word here, because I, I went deeper on this word to figure it out, was exousia. It's, it's specifically almost always used when it, in referring to God's own authority. And so they weren't saying, the comparison is not he's teaching like uh, uh, one of the scribes or one of the rabbis and he has more authority. They're saying we get the sense this man is teaching as if he was God himself. He's teaching with authority. 
And when we think of authority, uh, authority kind of has two, two meanings that we might think of. And we'll like, take a look at the first uh, in this passage, and we'll take a look at the second. The first is, have, have you ever had somebody kind of approach you kind of in an arrogant, condescending way, and you say, who do you think you are? Have you had that happen, right? Either at work, somebody thinks they, they actually have a position where they can tell you what to do. Uh, or you, you run into somebody who is telling you to do something, and immediately, right? Have you ever had somebody, like a self-proclaimed expert, they try to tell you something, and you're like, man, I know more about that than you do. Uh, I don't think you're talking to the right guy, because I'm not the beginner here. Uh, you have somehow stepped in, acting like you're the authority. Have you, have you had this scenario in your life, right? And it kind of makes you frustrated. Uh, and the immediate question is, so we come to authority. Like, who are you? If somebody tells you, who are you to have authority over me? Or if, if we're talking about expert in our field, who are you to tell me about your expertise or what you know? Uh, I should be teaching you. So this, the first idea of authority is basically, do you, are you an authoritative person? Do you have the right to be able to, uh, to say these things? Are you the authorized representative? That's the first question, and, and that's what we want to get to here. The second meaning of this authority is might. It's basically, do you have the ability, do you have the power to do what you say? We'll get to that in the next. But, so this idea of authority... Jesus preaches in the synagogue, and the people are literally knocked out of their senses, if we were to, to make a more direct translation, because they don't know how to properly understand what they have just heard. Because this man who was teaching was teaching as if he was representing God himself, that he was revealing God himself. Now, let me give you an ex example. Just so, uh, so we move from... The more vague to the less vague. And I'm looking for my Bible. Um, I don't think this is in the notes, so let me just turn to Matthew 5. And let me show you a specific example where Jesus is teaching with authority so you understand, yes, I get it. He wasn't teaching like the normal scribes. So in Matthew 5, verse, uh, chapters 5 through 7 really record a lot of Jesus' teachings on the kingdom. And in verse 21, for example, Matthew 5, 21, Jesus is teaching and he says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be held liable. So what the, what the scribes would normally do, they would read and then they would interpret but they never referred uh, or saw themselves as the authority. They would refer to other writings. So they would always refer to certain rabbis. Uh, or they would refer to traditions. But you notice how Jesus starts this. He says, you have heard. So basically, you've been taught by other rabbis or scribes. And then he says, but I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. We'll just stop there. So Jesus is, is teaching, and you see very clearly. Jesus says, hey, you've heard this. This is the way you've heard it taught. But I say, I say. Now, here's another one. Uh, Matthew 5, 27. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust and intent and already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is now basically standing in the middle of saying, I'm the one who interprets what the meaning was. I know you have your interpretations through your scribes and through your rabbis or through tradition. And Jesus is saying, you've heard this is what anger is? 
I am telling you the heart behind it. You uh, have heard what lust is. I'm telling you the heart behind it. Here's, here's another one that shocked me. Jesus says in uh, 5.43, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute, persecute you. Jesus is very clearly coming in and stepping in and saying, I know what you've heard, and I know what you believe about the scriptures. But I am stepping in as an authority to truly interpret God's heart and God's will in each of these things, on anger, on lust, on loving enemies, okay? So do you have a little better understanding of what they may have seen and understood? Nobody had ever taught like that. Nobody had stepped in and said, hey, here's what you heard, but I'm going to tell you, me, I'm stepping in as the authority. So very simply, here's the answer to the first question. What astonished the people about Jesus? And it was this. Jesus taught with the very authority of God. Simple question, simple, question, simple answer. What was astonishing? Jesus taught with the very authority of God. Now, I'll move on to the second question. That is, what amazed the people? And we're going to take a little bit longer look. We're going to read verses 23 to 28. Let me read them again for you. It says, And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. In verse 27, it says, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, a few things I want you to see about this scenario. So Jesus has finished teaching. He has finished interpreting the text. And we have a man with an unclean spirit. We would also call it, this would be called a demon. Uh, and we'll take a look uh, at a, a building, helping us build a healthy theology of demons and, and what should be our foundation to understanding what's taking place. But here's what I want you to see. We've already seen in Jesus' temptation that the devil is real, right? So if you were with us on our journey, we've already kind of pulled back uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the cover here and, and the, on the truth is that there's good and there's evil. Uh, immediately after Jesus was baptized, he's out in the, the desert and he's being tempted by Satan. And we took a look at who Satan was. He's an adversary. He, he's the father of lies. He's a tempter. And so he immediately tried to tempt Satan. We're going to see immediately as Jesus begins his ministry that again and again, Jesus, the, the, the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming, the kingdom of what we call light, is constantly going to run up against the kingdom of darkness. Uh, and we're going to see that play out here. Jesus has finished teaching. And literally, a man stands up. Now, I want you to see something that's amazing. So, if we talk about demons or an unclean spirit, this would be, in reality, Jesus' enemy, right? Uh, this, this is the, the uh, Bible tells us, and we'll, we'll take a look at this passage, the thief comes only to uh, steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life. We're, we're talking about uh, opposite ends of the spectrum. A... Demon makes himself known, and I want you to know, here's what happens when 
the kingdom of light comes into contact with the kingdom of darkness. You might think, if they're enemies, that the demon would try to assert himself, would try to injure somebody, would try to injure Jesus, would try to injure others. You might think there's a lot of things that might happen if you have two kingdoms in existence side by side, and there truly was a fight and a struggle for who is in control. But what you're going to see is not a fight, not a struggle. You're going to see the kingdom of darkness step up, recognize the kingdom of light, and simply acknowledge who Jesus is. It's the only thing you can do. Take a look at what happens here. The first thing that the unclean spirit says is a question. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? First thing we see is the demon recognized Jesus' identity immediately. The demon knows who Jesus is. In fact, if you want to get in theology, he affirms that he's human, uh, that Jesus was not just uh, God. Uh, he was God in, in flesh. He was incarnate. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. Secondly, the demon acknowledges Jesus' power. He says, have you come to destroy us? So it's a question. He recognizes who Jesus is and immediately, honestly, if you think, if, if Satan and demons or what we might call fallen angels exist to fight against the plans of God, and here we have the kingdom of light coming into contact with the kingdom of darkness, uh, and what's going to happen? You might think there might be a fight, a struggle, but Jesus is going to come out on top. Let me tell you folks, no fight, no struggle. There's one thing that happens. This unclean spirit recognizes Jesus' identity. He uh, affirms that Jesus has power over him. And then he affirms Jesus as the Holy One of God. After he does those three things, immediately, just by his words, Jesus shows his power over the demon by simply speaking. And the spirit obeys. So the second thing I want you to see is what amazed the people about Jesus. Now, if you were in that room, if you were in the synagogue, I mean, when we read the scriptures, we come into contact with things, especially from our Western world, that we probably don't see it a lot, don't talk about a lot. But the reality is there. And in fact, it's as plain as day. When we read the scriptures, God is real. His angels are real. Satan is real. Demons are real. That's just fallen angels, Right. Uh, and we're, we, I want us to go a little bit deeper so that we can build a theology. I don't want to leave you just there. This is a great opportunity to lay a solid foundation of uh, our understanding of, of demons. But here's what the second point. What amazed people about Jesus? It's this. They were amazed at his authority over unclean spirits or demons. He spoke and they obeyed. Astonished at his preaching... His preaching had authority, or his teaching carried the very authority of God. They were amazed at his power, right? That was, remember, I talked about authority as two things. First of all is, do you have the right? Do you have the right to be talking this way? Now, if you doubted whether Jesus had the right, right? Uh, basically, hey, talk is cheap. Show me, right? We, we, we think about that often. Don't tell me, show me. They did see Jesus. They saw his authority in his teaching. And now they actually saw the power that stood behind that teaching. So when he sees an unclean spirit, Jesus simply speaks and the unclean spirit departs. No fight, 
no struggle. Jesus has absolute, complete authority over Satan and over evil. Now, I want to build a a theology. I'm going to give you four verses. We're going to go through them quickly. And I want you to, uh, I want to just mention, we have seen this, we've pulled this out. This is 99 Essential Doctrines. Uh, It's simply a helpful booklet that outlines theology, has them numbered. I'm just going to point you to uh, the section on demons. So let me point this out. Do you have this, Des? All right. This is something that it's a PDF I could send you. It's just a helpful explanation of, of many of the different aspects of theology or faith. For example, the 35 is demons, right above that is angels. Uh, you can go through and, and read and, and find yourself a, a solid foundation for your faith as you read through this. Let's talk about demons. This is what demons are described as. Demons are angelic beings, so demons are angels, who sinned against God and now continually work evil in the world today. It cites Job 1.6, Zechariah 3.1, Luke 10.18. Demons oppose God and seek to destroy his work, as seen in the Bible's description of Satan, the head of demons, who seeks to steal, or steal, kill, and destroy. Though demons have power, they are limited by God's control, can only act within the constraints of what God permits. In the end, all of the demons will be cast into the lake of fire for which it is originally created. Now, that's a helpful little understanding of, of demons. We talk about unclean spirits, of who they are. Let me give you four passages. This is, we're kind of taking it aside, right? We were just introduced to the reality of, of unclean spirits or demon possession. We saw it in the ministry of Jesus. I want to give you four scriptures that are going to help you understand. One, uh, these are the scriptures that help us build a, a faith in the promises of God rather than a fear, a, a blind kind of fear of the reality of evil, which we know, but we oftentimes don't have proper boxes. So, I don't have these in, uh, in uh, do you have these, Des, actually? Okay, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. This is just a reality that evil exists and the battle is real. 6, 10 to 13, if you're taking notes. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle against flesh, or uh, not, a, uh, let me try again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then we're told, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. All right. So what is the armor of God? The armor of God is his promises that he's given to us in his scripture. We're going to take a look. So this is the reality. Evil does exist, and there is a battle that is not just against flesh and blood. 1 John 3, 8. You've got to understand, Jesus is the devil destroyer. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But look at this. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is what you see happening in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is coming in, he's teaching in the synagogue, and immediately an unclean spirit recognizes him, and all it can do is recognize his authority. But why? why? One of the reasons Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil, and you saw it immediately. 
The man who is being afflicted by this unclean spirit is cast out. John 10, 10 through 11. We've referenced this passage multiple times, but here's what I want you to see. Jesus has come not only to work against the devil, but he's come to give you life and bring you safely home. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus came not only to destroy the works of the devil, he came to fight against all that Satan is doing, and Jesus is going to lay his life down. Jesus has come that you might know. One, he came to give you life in the here and now, and he's laid down his life to bring you safely home. You need to know these promises when we understand the reality that sin exists, the evil exists, the devil exists, and demons exist in our world fighting against God and fighting against us. Lastly, Colossians 2, 14 to 15. You need to understand that in Jesus' death, he triumphed over the rulers and authorities. Colossians 2, 14 to 15 says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's the reality that all of us have sin. And because of that, Satan has a power over us. Is that he has an accusation in front of God. That we are not uh, in the kingdom of light, but we are owned by Satan in the kingdom of darkness. Satan can accuse us of sin. And anyone that can be accused of sin is under the power of the evil one. And Jesus comes and he has triumphed over them because anyone who has believed in Jesus, it says uh, the record has been canceled. The record of debt that stood against you and its legal demands has been canceled. It's been nailed to the cross. He's disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. Now that first passage from Ephesians it opened their eyes to something else. There's rulers, there's authorities, there's principalities, and there's, there's uh, a, uh, a power of darkness that exists in this world, right? In fact, this is one of the main reasons people often say, I don't believe in God. Well, if evil exists and evil is fighting against God, I think one of the most natural things that we would see in our world is that terrible, tragic things happen in a world that is broken where evil exists and Satan exists and demons exist. They're not responsible for, uh, for all the things. You know, we can't blame all of my actions on Satan. But what I can say is it's real. And God invites us to put on the armor of God. The armor is trusting in God's promises. And you need to know Jesus is the devil destroyer. Jesus has come to work against the devil to offer you life and to bring you safely home. And you need to understand that Jesus has already won the victory. It, the vict- it, it's not in question. Jesus has already won. He's already triumphed over Satan by giving his life on the cross and removing the accusation that Satan had against you. So now you get to walk in Jesus' victory. Okay? Now, so the summary, what you need to know is, hey, it's real. Demons can cause true human suffering and brokenness. The next thing is, but Jesus has power over Satan. And I'll just add this one thing, uh, just uh, so that if you're processing and maybe making the next connection, there is nobody, nobody that has believed in Jesus has the spirit of Jesus that can be possessed by a demon. The spirit of Jesus, the, the, the spirit of the living God is in you. you don't, he doesn't share you with the devil. If you have accepted Christ in your life, there is no way that the spirit of Satan or a demon can exist in your heart and body, Okay? So just want to make one more connection. 
That's not the be-all, end-all, but I thought this is an appropriate place to at least say, hey, we got to make sure when we come into passages like this and see the reality and the brokenness of our world, of something that we don't talk about, like demons or unclean spirits, you have a solid theology to say, okay, but I know four things that, are, that help me say I have faith in who God is and not fear uh, on what's out in this world. Now, I want to bring this home because we've taken a look at uh, what was astonishing about Jesus? We've taken a look at what amazed the people about Jesus. And I want to end with Mark's own question and that the people are asking, which is, what is this? I want us to take a quick look. I want to refer to something else in this 99 Central Doctrines, and it's uh, Miracles. Because what we're going to see is if, if, just think with me for a second. If Jesus is who he says he is, so he's coming and he's he's preaching, preaching as if he has the very authority of God. We see that when he encounters an unclean spirit, Jesus literally shows the power only God could have or possess. And it begs the question, If we see a person who is teaching with God's authority and who has God's authority, who is in front of us? What would we expect? And over and over again, when you read the New Testament, you're going to see Jesus perform what we call miracles. So here it's casting out a demon, but it really fits into a larger category of what we call miracles. So Jesus is going to heal the lame. He's going to give sight to the blind. He does cast out demons. He, he uh, is able to uh, bring Lazarus back to life, a man who was dead. Jesus is able to take disease and, and make it, uh, make someone completely whole, right? We'll take leprosy. Jesus is able to speak things into existence. And so I want to just talk about miracles for a second. Miracles, this is number 33, and that uh, are 99 essential doctrines. It says this, a miracle is an event in which God makes an exception to the natural order of things or supersedes natural laws for the purpose of demonstrating his glory and validating his message. Miracles are recorded throughout the scriptures. Miraculous signs and wonders were oftentimes evident when a prophet or apostle was speaking God's message to the people. Because we believe God to be all-powerful and personally involved in this world, we believe he can and does perform miracles. In fact, I would say we should expect, if there is a God that exists, and he wants us to know about him, then we should expect, if a God exists, who literally created the world. So he, is, he, is, he exists, and the world is something he created. And we, we have in this world, there is all kinds of natural law and order that our, our world runs according to. There's laws of physics. We, we see an entire realm of natural laws that, uh, that actually nobody can break. Like we can't break the natural laws. Uh, if, if there's one thing all of us must submit to, is at the end of the day, the natural laws that exist, I can't defy the, the laws of gravity. I'm not going to get in a rocket and try to... Uh, to uh, get up in space, but the reality is there's certain natural laws that all of us are, uh, are basically under the control of. Now, if the normal natural laws that we see are somehow set aside in a way that we know is impossible, for example, a man with leprosy, 
and a disease does not go from man with leprosy to completely clean by someone speaking a word. Because we're not talking in the realm of magic. We're not talking in the realm of spirits. We're not talking voodoo. We're talking about natural laws that have been set aside. And what can explain that? The only thing that can explain that, you know, and that, this is why we have a fascination with magicians, right? Is magicians, uh, they, they study a sleight of hand or how do I pull off something that looks so real? How do I make a coin disappear that you didn't think was there? How do I take your ring and all of a sudden make it move from your hand to somebody else's? And what you know is if you watch magic, then you also know, then you also have all the book of reveals. They reveal how they do these tricks. And the reality is we're fascinated by magic because it seems to set aside laws that we know that are impossible to break. And it makes us wonder, how did he do the trick? No, most of us don't say, he really levitated. But we're, we wonder, how did he levitate? Like, what was the trick behind that? But with Jesus, what we see is the very God who made the universe, because he is God himself, is able to step into our world, and he is able to enact his law over the natural laws at any point in time that he wants. So what we're seeing is a God who not only is proclaiming to be God, but in situations like with this demon or with any of the miracles of Jesus, God sets aside the natural laws so that we could see, so that we would ask, what is it? That's the question. What did we just see? Because apart from a God who controls all things, we have no answers. And hence, this is what a miracle is. A miracle is the reality that in our own human strength, and according to the natural laws, nothing like this can happen. The only way it happens, it's not magic. It's if a God exists who created the whole system, who created all things, and who created us, literally steps in and speaks what he desires into existence like he did at the beginning. And so this is where I want to end. Jesus' words and his, his works leave us with one undeniable conclusion. In the person of Jesus, God himself has come near. God sharing his message, his authoritative message, as far as who he is and how we can enter into the life that he's given. And if we back up just a, a few verses, what we know is that the kingdom that he has come proclaiming, that we can enter, is true. Jesus has invited us to repent and believe in the kingdom. We know that the kingdom that Jesus is inviting us to, to enter, is true. Maybe if I were just to give you a physical, uh, maybe, maybe a, a mental image. The other day I was watching something um, on the forces of nature. Uh, I like to watch documentaries and things, right? Uh, and I was watching it, and, and the, the episode was about the, um, the single largest um, grouping of tornadoes we have ever seen in the world. Uh, and uh, it was a few years ago. Um, it was in the middle of the U.S., and, and they, they had categories of tornadoes. And uh, for over two hours, this one area of land that covered several states experienced the, the largest concentration, uh, I think it was category five, uh, I know we have tornadoes, uh, uh, or excuse me, um, hurricanes, but we're talking about tornadoes. It was, it was the highest category they had, and they experienced it for, for two hours straight in, in different places. 
And I was just watching the video. What was amazing is you would see the tornado form in the clouds, and all of a sudden you would see it touch down. And wherever it touched down, there was, there was visual evidence in the destruction that it brought. It was, it was mind-numbing. It literally was just picking up cars. It picked up houses. You, there was a story, uh, a tragic story, of an elderly man and his wife, and they were trying to run for safety. He's holding his wife's hand, and because of the force of the storm, it literally picked her up and carried her away. Not five feet, not 15 feet. They don't know where. The, 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 the tornado literally picked her up and carried her off. These tornadoes are natural forces of amazing destruction. It's all based on just laws of physics, of cold air and hot air and how they begin to come together. But when they come together and they touch ground, here's what you see. You see a path of destruction that is left in his wake. The best thing I can tell you what we saw as Mark begins to help us understand is that when, when Jesus, in, in, the, in the person of Jesus and in the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus, that the kingdom of heaven has touched down. And everywhere Jesus goes, there is not a path of destruction. There is a path of life and healing. And everybody who comes into contact with Jesus, this supernatural force, not a natural force like a tornado, is that literally they're healed, they're changed, that everything that they knew was different. They heard a different message. They heard a message of life, and they also saw the power of God, a power they couldn't explain. The, as I was reaching and, and grasping for God, how do I even illustrate it? The only thing I could think of is looking at that path and looking at destruction and recognizing that is what Satan desires, a path of destruction. You have seen it in your life. We've seen it in the lives of our loved ones. We see it in the world. There is paths of destruction we can clearly trace to Satan and his demons and us in sin. And alongside comes this this. Other supernatural force that we have no words for, but Jesus begins to speak definition, saying, here is who God is, and here's his kingdom. And then Jesus begins to invite us into knowing and following, and everything that is in Jesus' wake is healed, is clean, is made whole. It's the exact opposite. And so... What is this? I told you we we're going to talk about what it means for you. So here's my question. This is just as you process. I can't tell you what, I can tell you objectively what the text means. So, so I, I can say, I can tell you what it means for you because I can just take this text and apply what these truths mean. I can't tell you what it means to you. That's you. I want to talk about what it means for you. Only you can talk about what it means to you. So here's question one. What would it mean if your search for authoritative truth of how to build your life ended? Because in Jesus, if this passage is true, Jesus came teaching in the very authority of God and telling us about God and his kingdom and how we enter into his kingdom. He's given us the singular truth worth building our entire lives on that changes everything. So my first question is, if we understand the text, what astounded the people was that they came into contact with God himself teaching in their synagogue. And it astonished them. So first question, what would it mean to you if your search for authoritative truth ended? Because that's what we're seeing in Jesus' teaching. My follow-up question for that, if you're still not sure, it was simply this. Then where is the authoritative truth that you're building your life on? 
I don't say that in a, mean, uh, in a negative way, condemning way. I simply want that if, if Jesus is not the truth you're building on, then like, what is the source? Is it you? Is it something else? What is the source that you're building on? I, be honest with yourself. Like, where, where, would you, where do you get truth to build your life on? Where are you finding that? Second question I want to ask, what would it mean to you to know that evil does exist and brokenness and hurt exist and it's real, but to hold that truth against the truth that Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil and bring you safely home? Because that's what it means that Jesus has power. Is that evil is real, Satan is real, the works of the devil are real, but something greater then Satan is here. What would it mean to you to live your life with the confidence that I know the God who has power over all things? What would it mean? What kind of peace and joy might that provide? And if you're still processing that question, my follow-up question to that would be this. Where are you finding the strength to live? Because we live in a broken, messed up world. And so what gives you any hope? And do you have the strength to fight against the things that you see, the brokenness that we see in our world? Are you taking that on in your own strength? And lastly, right now in your own heart, remember I told you that the book of Mark is going to invite us to be able to answer the question is, who is Jesus to us? If you're honest with yourself... Where are you in answering that question? This is, this is not for me, so this is the to you question. Where are you in answering that question? No condemnation, simply an invitation to quietly think and reflect. You've heard the message today, you've heard what Mark says, you heard that why we were astonished and you heard why people were amazed. It was Jesus' authority, his teaching and his power. Where are you at with that in your own heart? And I want to invite you to ask yourself honest questions and to really understand why you believe what you believe, what you're building your life on, and what gives you hope when we look at this broken world. I want to invite our team, our worship team, to close us with a song. And let me just pray that God gives us eyes to see. God, I want to pray as we look at Mark and we study this passage God, the people were astonished that they were amazed, and I pray that you would work in our heart to see what Mark saw, to see what those people saw. I do pray, God, that we would, we would know and love your word and the authority that it brings for living in our life of a foundation to build on. I pray that we would long for your power. The reality is, God, we're weak. And the brokenness that we see not only in the world, but in us, is so big. And so God, I pray that you would help our hearts know how to respond to you. And I pray that we would be able to honestly say where we're at. Not in front of anybody else, but just in front of you. pray these things in the name of Jesus.
name above all and every other name. Amen.